Okay, open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 20. Let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you so much that we get to do this, that we get together. Lord, you know how much I was looking forward to this morning to be with friends, to sing songs of praise to you, to open your word. Lord, we want to receive all that you have for us. As we explore your word today, we pray that you would bring it to life by your spirit. Help us not to think, uh, Lord, that this was only something uh, meant for the people back then when it was originally given. But, Lord, this is for us now, today. Lord, we want to see its meaning. Yes, we want to apply it and run with it. We, We thank you for it. So guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been asked a question by someone and you knew they they really weren't interested in your answer? In Luke chapter 20, Jesus is attacked from almost every angle with questions about authority and allegiance, even the afterlife. And his response, it not only displays his absolute brilliance, but it gets to the heart of what's really behind the questions that were being asked him. Questioning Jesus is one thing, but deciding what to do when we hear his answer is another. Look with me in Luke. Actually, we're going to start in Luke 19, verse 45. And he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things, or or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they, when the people heard this, They said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, 
What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We'll pause there. There are three main questions that come at Jesus in Luke 20. The first is one about authority. They're questioning Jesus' authority. The second question we'll get to in a few minutes is questioning personal allegiance. And then there's a final question about the afterlife. But let's look at this one, questioning Jesus' authority. We began in chapter 19 for a reason And even before the passage that we read in verse 45 through 48 of 19, Jesus actually, he he finds himself in Jerusalem. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you know he's been heading towards Jerusalem and his resolute to get to Jerusalem because he knows that in Jerusalem he will accomplish what he has set out to accomplish. He enters Jerusalem in what we could call a prophetic enactment of triumph. He's on a colt. They're spreading out cloaks on the road. I encourage you to read. It's a little, uh, it's in 19 before we, uh, we, we haven't read that, but I encourage you to read the rest of chapter 19 when you can. Here Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a colt. The disciples, the crowds are spreading out palm branches and cloaks and they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus then makes his way straight to the temple. And when I say temple, I don't mean small structure. I mean, I mean, a a, a temple area that encompassed uh, courtyards, an entire district, a public space, places of worship. And of course, the, the temple proper was there as well. And Jesus makes his way to that temple district, to the area. He enters the temple and begins to drive out those who are selling items uh, for personal gain. He starts, to, Mark tells it this way, he's flipping tables. All of this is symbolic of what? Of Jesus' great authority. He's not at all happy with what he sees happening in the temple. He quotes the prophet Isaiah, identifying the temple as his house of prayer. And then Jesus is seen uh, daily teaching in the temple. So there's actions that demonstrate authority. What he's doing in the temple, flipping tables and pushing out those who are selling things. And what he's doing there, teaching daily, demonstrates authority. He's not a part of the temple leadership So what credentials does Jesus really have? Why is he doing this? Jesus is acting like someone who thinks he's in charge. You ever meet a person like that? Maybe it's your workplace. They try to take charge of a meeting. You're like, what's this guy doing? (laughs) Come on. Who does he think he is? Is someone going to do something about this guy? So annoying. In chapter 19, verse 47, the chief priests and the principal men of Jerusalem, the wealthy aristocracy of Jerusalem, they were seeking to destroy Jesus. But the people were hanging on Jesus' every word. They couldn't destroy him. They couldn't do what they wanted to do. They were so not only annoyed, it was beyond annoyance. They, they could see that Jesus was acting as if he had all authority, that he was in charge. And that's the point. Jesus is in charge. Jesus does have authority to do what he's doing. He has royal, kingly authority. And all of that was confirmed at his baptism. Do you remember his baptism? With John the Baptist, 
He, it was the beginning of his public ministry, and Jesus is baptized. And in that baptism experience, what happens? The voice from heaven, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So God the Father is present giving his stamp, his affirmation of what the Son is doing and he's about to embark on, and the, the Spirit is present who descends like a dove. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit present. And all of this is a recognition of Jesus' role and position and authority and ministry. So from the start, Jesus had this authority. He understood it. He knew it. And from the start, he was proclaiming a kingdom. He understood himself to be the king. As Jesus does what he does in Jerusalem, preaching with authority and casting out those in the temple that shouldn't be there doing what they're doing, cleansing the temple, we could say, the religious leaders are are threatened by it. And it, it threatens to upset what they have going on in Jerusalem. It threatens to upset their corruption. It threatens to upset their entire way of life. It challenged them on the spot. Isn't that still true today? Think about this. Isn't that still true? It's true for anyone beginning to really listen to what Jesus is actually saying. It's true for anyone who is really beginning to notice how Jesus acted throughout the Gospels. That he hasn't come just to leave things how how they've always been, the way they are, with you in charge. He hasn't come that way. He's come to disrupt everything. To change things. Things are not going to be the same as they've always been. He He hasn't come to do a sort of tag team leadership with you either. We all have to come to terms with Jesus' authority. All of us here have to come to terms with it. What do we do about it? How do we respond to it? Okay, back to chapter 20, verse 1. Jesus is preaching the gospel, the kingdom of God, and a group of men, most likely members of the high court of the temple, the Sanhedrin, they confront Jesus and ask a question about authority. Remember, they were set out to destroy Jesus, so here they go. They're setting out now to destroy him. What gives you the right to do what you're doing? Who gives you the right to be here doing what you're doing, Jesus? It's essentially the heart of the question. Now, Jesus turns it around and asks his own question about John the Baptist and his ministry. Look at verse 4. I will also ask you a question. Now, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? When Jesus asks this, when he says John's baptism or the baptism of John, this just encompasses uh, the whole ministry of John, what he proclaimed, what he taught And he says, is this from heaven or from man? When he says from heaven, he means, is this of God? Instead of saying the divine name of God, they would say from heaven. So is this from heaven or from man? Now, John was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one who would go before the Messiah, the the coming king, the coming deliverer, and ready the way, prepare the way. He was announcing in the desert the way of the Lord. And then came Jesus on the scene. He prepared the way by preaching a message of repentance, of cleansing. And then Jesus arrived on the scene, the very one that John was preparing the way for. So in in asking this question, their response to John will reveal their response to Jesus, and, and Jesus knows this. They have to admit, is John from 
heaven, his message, his ministry. And if they admit that, you know what they're also admitting? That John's message is from God. His message of corrupt leadership within Israel is of God. And his message about Jesus being Messiah is of God. If John is the true prophet, then Jesus is the true Messiah. So Jesus puts those who are asking him a question in a real pickle. They know what they thought of John, but they can't say it. The people will stone them. We know what they thought of John. Jesus knew what they thought of John. And so they say, well, we don't, we don't know where John's baptism came from. And Jesus says, I won't tell you by what authority I do these things then. Smiley face, winky face. Because I know you know. They weren't really open. They weren't really interested in Jesus' answer. They were trying to trip him up. They wanted to destroy Jesus. Are you open to Jesus' answer? Are you really open to what Jesus has to say today, right now? Are you open? I think sometimes we're threatened by his authority. If we're honest with ourselves, like, really, Jesus? You're stepping on my toes. You're getting in my business. You're getting in my face, Jesus. He does that. For our good, for his glory. Instead of giving this direct answer, Jesus goes on to tell a parable, a story about the religious leaders right in front of them. We already read it. It's in verses 9 through 18, and it's a story about a vineyard. And as soon as Jesus uttered the word vineyard, the people listening would have understood this is about Israel. The prophet Isaiah and other prophets talked of Israel as a vineyard. And the prophets were poets. They presented uh, these, these truths uh, from God in this poetic fashion with this vivid imagery. And Israel was often, like I said, compared to a vineyard. And so here we have this story about tenants who are caring for a vineyard. Who are all the main characters in this story? The vineyard is Israel. The owner is God. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel. The servants are the prophets of old. And the beloved son, well, it's Jesus. And in this story, Jesus is putting on display in an abbreviated way through allegory the corruption of Israel's leadership, that they're behaving in a way that's actually opposing God. And by the way, when he tells the story, he's also showing where his authority comes from, that he has all the rights, that he belongs where he is, doing what he's doing, and by the way, he knows where all of this is going, that they will kill him. And as soon as it looks like he doesn't have authority, that he's not in control, it's actually not the case. He is in charge, even when it seems like he's not. This story, this allegory that Jesus tells uh, the people gathered within uh, uh, range of the, the, the corrupt leaders, the, the story that he tells is a story of judgment that will come on Israel. The vineyard will be given away to others. Now, the people who are listening, they get it. Do you know why we know they get it? Because their response, they're appalled. They're just like, no way, certainly not. When the owner comes back, no, he's going to give the vineyard away? No. 
Look what Jesus said in response. Verse 17. He looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Oh, what's happening here? Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, and he's pulling from images in the prophet Isaiah, especially chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, and he's, he's talking about this cornerstone or this capstone, a critical piece in the building, that the stone that was rejected will become that, the most important stone. Well, what's this stone talk? Again, it's from the prophets. The prophet Daniel spoke about a stone as well. God's kingdom actually in Daniel chapter 2 is portrayed as a stone, quote, not made with human hands that crushes all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of the world who reject him. And the stone in the prophet Daniel becomes this great mountain that actually covers the whole earth. Now, what's going on here? Again, colorful pictures that are hard to shake and we shouldn't that speaks something about Jesus to our hearts. What is it saying? Jesus Christ is the rejected stone who will triumph in judgment over those who reject him. He speaks this parable, this story, in the presence of these corrupt leaders and says, you're rejecting the very one whom God sent. The stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. Jesus is the rejected but exalted stone that completes God's building, what God is doing. Jesus is the centerpiece of God's work. So how you respond to Jesus is everything. It's everything. Now, I want you to see how the, the church understood what Jesus was saying and how they used it. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, the early church, I should say, because here we are, the church. But the early church in Acts chapter 4, look what they say in chapter 4, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The early church got it. They understood Jesus is the stone that was rejected, but has become the cornerstone. Now look with me in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, to Jesus, uh, you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, in this stone, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, listen, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Wow, seems like a really important passage to the New Testament church. It is. The leadership standing around hearing this allegory, this parable, knew that this story was about them. 
You know what they did in response? They hired spies to pretend to be sincere, to use flattery and ask questions in order to trip Jesus up, to frame him, to entrap him. They want Jesus to say something that will either get him in trouble with the government of Rome or divide the people's allegiance to him. So what do they come up with to talk about? Taxes, of course. Let's check it out. Verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, on Jesus, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And so they asked him, teacher, We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? To give taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? No, they said Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Okay, the first question that was brought to Jesus was about his authority. The second question is about personal allegiance. And they come in strong with flattery. They're insincere. And Jesus can smell it a mile away. Taxes, specifically the toll tax, was a huge burden on the people. And they resented it. And so if Jesus says, well, pay your tax, pay your tribute, then he'll be accused of siding with Rome. Uh, But if Jesus says, don't pay your tax, he'll be accused of rebellion, stirring up insurrection, defiance. Everyone's quiet. Everyone's wondering, how's he going to get out of this? What's he going to say? He says, hey, does anyone have a, a denarius, a day's wage, a coin? Does anyone? And someone in the crowd produces one. And so he takes it and he raises it up. And on one side is the, the likeness, the, the image of Tiberius Caesar Augustus, his head. With the inscription that says, son of the divine Augustus. Which was a blasphemous statement to the Jews. And on the other side of that coin is the goddess of peace, which is idolatry. So you have blasphemy on one side, idolatry on the other. And Jesus takes it and he says, whose likeness is actually on this coin? Well, whose likeness was on it? Caesar's. And give it to him. And give it back to him. Render it to him. Give it away. Give it back again to him. And, doesn't stop there, render or give away, give back, pay what you owe to God, the things that are God's. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. And in one breath, he challenges the religious leaders, the crowds, the spies, and the reader, you and I, to give back to God what belongs to him. He's a genius. He's brilliant. What do we have that belongs to him? Our very lives. Oh, sure, there's a likeness of Caesar, uh, uh, Tiberius Caesar on the coin. Whose likeness... Are, Whose image do we bear? Are we, we're made in the image of God. 
Each one of us have value and worth because we are made in his likeness. He values us, and we should value one another. And so he says, render to God what is God's. You belong to him. You belong to him. This is about loyalties, priorities, our allegiance. So what starts out as questioning Jesus' allegiance is turned around on us. Jesus turns it around. If, if we belong to God, then he has the authority and the rights, and he deserves our allegiance. And he deserves our allegiance that looks like commitment. It, it actually looks like devotion from us. Jesus doesn't take the bait. I love this. He doesn't take the bait and get caught up in arguments about taxes. He goes for what is more important. There's something there for us to learn. Listen, all the debates raging on Facebook and social media, there's something for us to learn there. He doesn't take the bait and dive in to talk about taxes. He talks about something much greater. Now, listen, you might buck the government, but what about God? Do you recognize his authority, that you belong to him, and he's calling you back to himself. Render to God. Give back. Give what he what you owe back to him, your very life. And that's why in the New Testament it goes on to say, present your your very life, your body, as a living sacrifice to God. You were purchased. You belong to him. You don't belong to yourself. When we begin to understand his authority, his rule is good and loving and gracious and that we were actually made for it, that we find purpose and identity and worth and joy in that. We'll, we'll start to see it differently. How are you supposed to give yourself to God? Where do you begin? Where does it start? Those are good questions for you to wrestle with today. Have you? Have you given yourself to God? Have you made that commitment? Render to God what is God's. You belong to him. Will you give yourself to him? Will you start today? Crowd was silent. And the last question now is presented to us with this next group of people that approaches Jesus, the Sadducees. And they are questioning him about the afterlife or about the resurrection. Let's read about it. Verse 27. Now there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies... Having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age, to that age, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But now he is not 
God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. Every month, um, millions of people type in questions like, Who is Jesus? Um, in, in online search bars. Honest questions. Honest questions about the identity and the person and the work of Jesus deserve an honest answer. This is a safe place. Local church St. Pete from the start has been a safe place for you to bring your questions. Bring your questions. If you're wrestling with faith, if you're wondering who Jesus is, what it means for your life, this is a good place to be. You're going to the source. You're looking to the authority on the matter. We want you to ask questions. Now, if you've embraced Jesus as king and you're his follower and questions come up, you're going to have questions like the ones we are reading about, about authority, about allegiance, about the afterlife. Nothing wrong with these with questions about those things. What's wrong in Luke 20 is the motive and the agenda behind the question. They're trying to trip Jesus up. They want Jesus to be destroyed. The Sadducees are this Jewish group that they do not believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in angels, in demons. They, don't, they only embrace the first five books of the Bible. They don't believe in the afterlife. And so they're coming with this question that seems like this honest question, but there's an agenda behind it. They want to shame Jesus. They want, him, they want to really expose the craziness about believing in a, a supposed resurrection. When I say resurrection, here's what I mean. I don't mean some disembodied spiritual existence after we die. Though when we die, we'll be present with the Lord. But I mean you could say like, we could say it this way. It's, it's life after death, or is it life after life after death? And I think that's the better way to say it because resurrection means restoration. Resurrection means transformation. It's, it's a resurrection of, 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 of who we are, of a transformation of this world. Not just some disembodied spiritual existence where we hover on a cloud and stroke a harp. The Sadducees didn't believe in that. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And they're attempting to shame Jesus. They're attempting to prove that any belief in resurrection is straight nonsense. Absurd. That's what they're trying to show. And they try to show it by saying, all right, this woman, well, a man had a wife, he died, and then all seven brothers had her as wife. Whose wife will she be in the supposed resurrection? And I think really what Jesus said, it's not written here, he, he probably said something like, hey, listen, after the fifth and sixth guy, he, they should have known this woman's dangerous. <laughs> what are they doing marrying her? No, he didn't say that. He begins to just open the window a little bit into the afterlife, into what will be. The sons of this age, this world, and those of that age, the world to come, are compared. And he talks of a resurrection life that won't be exactly the same as as life is now, where there won't be marriage, there won't be any death. But then he gets to their real question 
about resurrection and life. And he, and he talks about the, the passage about the bush. What's he doing? He's talking about Exodus chapter 3. Now, there were no chapters and verses uh, at this time. And so he says that the passage about the bush, the burning bush, where Moses encounters the living God at a bush that is not consumed by flames, yet is on fire. And God speaks to Moses out of that bush, and he says, I am. I am he who is. I, I am who I am. And he says, he reveals himself to Moses, and he reveals himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, what is Jesus doing talking about this passage with the Sadducees. Well, the Sadducees embraced these books, this book, Exodus, as, as uh, an authority, as authoritative, divinely inspired. And he uses this book. He says, right there in your trusted book, are you willing to accept resurrection? Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's right there. Do you see it? Are you interested in what is true? Are you interested in what is real? Are you open to my answer? It's essentially the heart of what Jesus is, is, is saying. Are you, church, open to what is true? Are you pushing against it? Okay, we've covered a lot of ground here today. I, I know that. We've talked about authority, allegiance, and the afterlife. All really important topics. We, we talked about them, though, in such a way that Jesus was being attacked. They were trying to get him out of the way, destroy him. They couldn't do it. We see Jesus' brilliance. Uh, listen, it's one thing to come with questions, but, but are you ready for his answer? What are you going to do when you hear his answer? We've heard his answer about these things. So what we see is that this, this corrupt religious system was trying to muster all that it could to get Jesus out of the way and even recruit the authority of Rome. Well, what happens? What happens when they eventually recruit Rome? We're going to get to that. Well, it leads Jesus to a cross. And what is the cross? The cross is, well, an instrument of death that demonstrates to everyone around it who's in charge. Rome would use the cross to demonstrate that they're in charge. You defy me, you go against Rome, you'll go to a cross. Jesus ended up on a cross. But through his death, and through his resurrection, he demonstrated that he is the one who actually holds all the authority. That he is the one who deserves our full allegiance. And he is the one who provides resurrection life. Turned around. Turned it all around. Do you see it? Jesus is the one with all authority. Jesus is the one who's calling you to full allegiance. Render to him what belongs to him. And he's calling you to resurrection life. Okay. Questioning Jesus is one thing. Deciding what to do when we hear his answer is another. What are you going to do with the answers that he has provided? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Luke chapter 20. It's packed. But thank you that in it we see questions about authority and allegiance and the afterlife. And, and these are important topics for us to wrestle with and for us to work through. We thank you for the brilliance of Jesus that just spills off the page. We thank you for his answers. Lord, 
you know it's been my prayer, Lord, that the stone that the builders rejected, it's become the cornerstone. Lord, my prayer has been that no one here would reject that stone. No one here would reject the authority that belongs to Jesus. That no one here would reject the allegiance that belongs to Jesus. That no one here would reject the resurrection life that is only found in Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.